Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unearthing the Universe, a podcast for Georgetown Literary Festival 2021. I'm Lee Tree Lin, uh, a radio presenter and producer at BFM 89.9, um, and where I focus on current affairs, books, and film. And today I'm thrilled to be speaking with my guest, Tina Macaretti. She's a novelist, essayist, short story writer, um, in, and her works include novels like Where the Rikoku Bone Sings and The Imaginary Lives of James Ponike and the short story collection, Once Upon a Time in Aotearoa. She's also a senior lecturer at the Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, Tina, thanks so much for being with us. Sure, thank you very much for having me. So, um, firstly, one of the things that really struck me uh, while reading your work was the value that's placed on stories, story themselves, um, and how they inform one's life, one's sense of belonging. And I wondered if you could talk to us about that. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's very important to me. Um, I think I'm just lucky enough to have found that I could write stories. Um, because they'd taken such a central place in my life in terms of, I guess I'm always writing about identity as well and understanding that story without our stories, um, it's very hard to access identity, um, as, particularly as an Indigenous person who has um, had limited access or at times no access to the stories of my own family, um, but also my own culture. So that's how stories became such a big thing in my life because when I discovered them, and I was, I was probably in my late teens when I really um, started uh, discovering, rediscovering my culture through, through study, studying at university, but also mainly through those cultural stories. Um, and then kind of went through another kind of flourishing in my, I guess, early 30s when I, again, when I actually started writing. So there was a kind of educational thing that was happening, but actually writing and realising I guess the stories that are passed down to us are important, but also having not so much control, but creative, um, create, I want to think of a better word than control, um, <laughs> creative um, strength and creative, um, what we would call, I guess, rangatiratanga, which is power over our own stories um, and, and being able to create them afresh, not just, um, not just, uh, digging out the old stories, but um, creating our futures through new stories. You've also written and spoken about the push and pull of your mixed heritage and how that affects your sense of place. Um, and I wanted to get into how this informs your writing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of the same thing. I think, um, yeah, it's really interesting talking to you in Malaysia um, and, and thinking about, I'm wondering what it's like there. But here, um, so I uh, was brought up by my Pākehā or a white Euro European New Zealander father um, away from my Māori heritage. And that had a huge um, impact, like I was saying, on actually how I understood myself as a person. Um, but... Even though my example is quite extreme, I find that mixed, even though um, in New Zealand and mixed heritage, um, people of Māori and Pākehā descent are very common. In fact, in my daughter's generation, probably um, that's, that's pretty much the norm. But we still have a lot of difficulty in understanding ourselves as, um, as more than just one thing. And I, I love that about stories. Um, that they're always about the complexity of a person. They're always about the the multiplicity of who we are and that we have many layers. 
um, which seems kind of obvious when you say it, but um, actually we, we tend to walk around with this idea that we're going to be one thing. Um, and I've never been one thing. Even on my Māori side, I have um, several different identities, several different tribes. On my Pākehā side, I, th- I think white immigrant or settler people are quite good at losing their stories in the, in the process of settling um, in a new place. So um, there's, there's multiple identities there too. Um, and I find it a really kind of inspirational place in terms of there's a lot of stories there. A lot of young writers that I work with are still asking the same questions I was asking when I was their age. And so I don't know if we've got any further. There's a lot to write about in that space of actually what does it mean to be from several different places? Um, how can you be many things at once? And the paradox of that, I think, is a real um, really informs my writing. Um, I wanted to talk, I guess, about the parallels between two characters that I was thinking of, or that I kept thinking of. Um, the bird woman in the short story Black Milk and James Fonike, who is a young Maori boy brought to London as a living exhibit. And there were a number of things I wanted to kind of draw out, but um, one of them is a sense of journeying and returning or of longing to return. Um, where does that come from? Oh my goodness, you, you ask amazing questions, which now I'm going to dig really deep to um, think about that. And, and it's always a pleasure to be asked, a, like to have something, some of your work compared in that way, because I haven't thought of those two characters together before. Um, but interestingly, I think they, they both have that element of lost identity, of, um, of like you say, um, moving and traveling. And I think to get very psychological on it. I never, uh, I didn't grow up in one place as long as well as having many different heritages. I, I don't have a, a hometown as such. Um, and I think this is like, as I think this is also why I identify with immigrant writers and immigrant um, kind of worldviews as well as even though I'm indigenous to Aotearoa and I can name a lot of home places here, um, that idea of, never quite being home or never quite um, settling in one place um, and having to go away to find out those, you know, find out actually, well, not so much find out about yourself, but New Zealanders habitually do that. We go overseas and then we figure out, um, oh, actually, these are the things that are important to me as a New Zealander. Um, And I think just to go on on a tangent here uh, with James Porneke, um he's yeah he's going away not so much to find himself but because of that sense of adventure and sense of um I think that Māori always had of like from day one as soon as the European ships landed here Māori people were heading off into the world and and it wasn't um unusual and I think somehow we've got a, an idea about history that everybody is is more settled and just in one place um, in fact, my ancestors also migrated within New Zealand. Um, a number of my tribes migrated, and that's in the imaginary lives of James Pornicke as well, that migration. And so I'd always kind of, as I say, as a kind of fairly lost young person growing up with this idea that Māori people came from one place, were one kind of thing, and I thought, I don't fit that. And as the, the more of the stories I found, I actually realised that actually Māori were highly mobile, um, that the history is not as um, 
solidified and stable as we like to think, um, that culture is not solidified and stable, and that movement um, and that um, discovery has been kind of constant. And so this wasn't so unusual. With the bird woman, I think there's a lot of loss and kind of grief over colonisation and over... um, uh, It was inspired by some pictures from... Um, that were taken in a museum of some birds um, that were extinct, um, had become extinct through colonisation. And so I don't know how to break that story down, but it was, I feel like that was imbued in the story, that sense of of loss and grief that colonisation creates in our lives. And then we go uh, out into the world trying to find a way to still exist. Um, I also actually... Um, have another question about both characters, but I thought we could touch on uh, James Ponike in the spirit of, uh, in the spirit of the title of our conversation, unearthing the universe. I mean, you mentioned there kind of the root of where the Bird Woman came from, and with James Ponike, you include a note about how this was, or the germ of the idea, I guess, began with a an article of a young Maori person in London, or rather on a ship who had gone through a traumatic experience. And um, I was just thinking, where, I know this is a very trite question to ask writers, where do your ideas come from? Um, but in the in the spirit of our conversation, do you think of your work as unearthing narratives? And, you know, where do you look for those stories? Yeah, actually, um, I probably do. I probably don't think about it as eloquently as that. But um, I do think about it in terms of um, in terms of trying to find stories that haven't been told, it's not like I actively go out saying to myself, "It must be a story that hasn't been told." It's that everywhere I look, there are stories that haven't been told, and surprising stories. Um, and I think um, one of my great passions is to allow us to have more of these stories told, um, to have more writers and more different versions because we do tend to get um, stuck in this. Um, Chimamanda Adichie talked about the danger of a single story, and we certainly get stuck in that um, in New Zealand. We get stuck in one version of history. Um, and so my project has always been to, um, like you say, unearth the stories um, that haven't been told from our perspective or that haven't been told at all. Um, and one of the stories that I just found extraordinary that I'd never heard, I'd done an, a degree in social anthropology, I'd done a degree in Māori studies, I'd been, um, and I'd done a master's in creative writing before I learnt that people were exhibited to the extent that they were, in, um, particularly in the UK and Europe and, and America. Um, and so that was where James Pornecki came from. And then I found a, a um, just incidentally, I went to a, a colloquium where I heard about a young man who went there. And I don't think he was exhibited in the worst, in the worst example of what happened, but he certainly went over and was part of an exhibition. And I, um, I thought that was a fascinating story that we hadn't heard um, and and to it seemed like a story that had somehow just been quietly forgotten that this was quite a common thing to do. So yeah, I did definitely think um, here's a story that needs to be told. Um, the the other thing I was thinking about um, with both these characters is the idea of being isolated from your people and the pressure that comes with that of you know being 
the soul entrusted in a different space of your story and your legacy and of potentially losing that story over time. Um, could you tell us more about writing those elements into your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, it probably definitely just comes from my own life and feeling that way a lot. But I think it's not an uncommon feeling to have in terms of um, being culturally isolated. When we live in a dominant structure or a dominant society where that kind of constructs us in a certain way so that we we uh, kind of spend most of our lives, I still spend most of my life in in cities and institutions where your culture is not the most prominent thing. Um, and that you have actually have to very work quite hard to ma- maintain contact with your culture. And I guess I'm speaking as an urban Indigenous person. Um, and so there's always a sense of separation or a sense of just underlying. I'm quite comfortable in the urban space. I'm quite comfortable in the institutions I work with. But there's always, uh, I guess this came out in James Poneke in particular in terms of performing identity. So you're always um, you know, it's it's never it's never something that I kind of forget that I will be seen a certain way. Um, in fact, when I first started writing, I thought I don't want to be seen as a Maori writer, and I kind of quickly gave that up because I thought, well, there's no there's no way to not be um, seen as Maori, and what people assume or stereotype that means. Um, I don't. Uh, of course, I'm very happy to be Maori. It's just that that idea that you represent something or you re- represent things in a certain way. So you carry around this burden constantly of being both um, not actually being able to occupy the cultural space all the time because it just doesn't exist everywhere, but also having to carry the culture as as a representative. If that makes sense, I don't know if I've gone off on a tangent there, but <laughs> I guess that's that's where that feeling of of kind of loneliness and disconnection comes from. And it's kind of a, a thing that happens um, underneath everything else. It's not something you notice, but sometimes you just get exhausted and um, it'll, it'll, and then you go home to, to your home people or wherever you go to, to have that cultural connection. And you, I mean, I think probably a lot of the people listening and maybe yourself as well, you can imagine, you know, when you go home to your family or, or your wider family group where you go, oh, that's, 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 I wish it was always like this. So, um, yeah, that's where that's coming from. It's the lack of a need for explanation, I think. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, that sense yeah. of relief, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get that. Totally. Um, uh, the other thing um, I wanted to talk about was, and this is an issue that I think Indigenous cultures around the world faces of having their practices and lives understood by others um, exclu- exclusively through the writings and studies of outsiders or through museums um, and, and of having, I, I don't know if the word calcified is correct, but of having it kind of stultified into one single thing and that's all it is. Um, what role do stories play in pushing back or changing that narrative? Yeah, I think that's that's an amazing question. I think that is um, that thing I was talking before about, I, I mean, a good story is never one thing. A good story is always several stories. A good character is is never good or bad. A good, a good character is always complex and, and possibly, I mean, one thing, I don't know if um, everybody reads into James Porneke, but one thing about him is that 
Um, in a way, he's kind of a reflection of my own feelings of being complicit in colonization. Like, okay, I don't like it, but I still, uh, I still take part in this economy. I still like, I love the gifts of of some of the gifts that came with, like um, the way stories are told, the way they're written, um, and so I was part of that. Um, and James is part of that. He loves, at first, he wants the gifts of the empire He before he kind of encounters them. Um, and um, so that's uh, that's how the story becomes more complex. It's not just, um, I think at first I was writing the story and um, James was seeing the empire through indigenous eyes. And obviously, from my point of view, um, he's kind of the good guy. And so he's seeing that he's he's seeing the British culture, which was calling him savage. And actually, you know, Victorian London was a pretty savage place. So that's where it started was was turning this the savage eye back on on the on civilized so called civilization. But in writing that, it just felt too simplistic. Um, and so it's not just the ability of writing to give us multiple characters and multiple ways of seeing things but to actually know that each character is um, a much more complex uh, being. Um, and I think that's why I've written histor historical, um, I don't tend to think of them as historical novels, but I've written into history because that's one of the places, as you say, that's kind of calcified, that we think we, think we know what that was. Um, and I think it was much more complex than that, and people had much more um, complicated needs and desires than we give them credit for. Um, which I think um, is a reason why the queer elements of the story came into the story as well, was that um, I kind of thought, you know, the people that exist now also existed um, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, um, and they were somewhere. <laughs> so um, I was quite interested in how um, not just Indigenous people, but all kinds of people who don't fit in managed to make a life in a place like London. I love asking writers of historical fiction this, basically. When you're writing it, what work do you do to to nail it, to nail the details of the time oh. and the place, um, but also of how, I guess, um, how characters in that time and place might approach their lives? Yeah, that's so difficult. So um, because, well, what I did was research and research and research um, and then just get obsessed by the research and get a bit lost in it um, and then come away and try to write a scene and then I'd walk a character into a room and I'd think well I don't know what this room looks like um, so then I'd have to go away I remember distinctly at one point trying to write the life of um, uh, Miss Angus who is a upper middle class like newly rich family um, and there's all sorts of roles and responsibilities she has. She's only really allowed to be in the house most of the time and go visiting and, and the kind of um, protocols around her life are quite extreme. So I got all that down, but I still couldn't describe what her table looked like like and what rooms the rooms of her house looked like because it was very different. Even the times where they ate was very different. So then I, um, I believe the historian is... Uh, oh. I know her first name is Judith. Um, but there's this amazing historian who I read and I probably acknowledged in the back of the book who um, had all the domestic details of a life. And so you 
I'd read all of that and I'd use, you know, 0.0001% of actually what I found out about. Um, but I was so happy to be able to know what kind of food they had on their table. And I found that what it was in the end, um, I remember I tried very hard. I, I also did a lot of research on what kind of roads um, they had in Victorian London in 1846, which were quite different than 1848 or 1843 because it was a very rapidly um, moving um, area of development at that time. And and roads were privately built and privately owned. So it was all very strange. So I did all that. I didn't use any of that, but I did use some of my domestic stuff. But what I found is that it didn't matter. I just needed to believe it myself. I needed to be able to see it. Um, and so it's like in a, writing a contemporary novel, we know what a room looks like. Um, and we probably know what different kinds of rooms look like belonging to different kinds of people. But if I was writing about Victorian London, um, I had to know, you know, what a um, rich person's room looked like, what a middle class person's room looked like, what a poor person's room looked like, um, and how many rooms they had and what kind of buildings they lived in. And it was purely just to give me a sense of confidence um, that I knew what I was talking about, uh, even if half of that didn't make it into the book. Um, the other thing I did was just go go to London, which I'm really, really um, fortunate to have been able to do a couple of times because I'd never been there before writing this book, um, which is a kind of strange for a New Zealander because New Zealanders almost always go to London as part of their OE, their overseas experience when they're a young adult. And that's, that's the rite of passage for young New Zealanders. Um, I'd never been, so I went and... That gave me such details as most of London is made of bricks um, or I'm going to get the name of the stuff wrong, but, you know, that kind of um, edifice that the, the, the houses have, <laughs> which obviously I didn't describe in the book because I've forgotten what it's called. Um, but seeing just so much of a place still carries that history in its very walls, um, how long the streets are, I would walk from one end of... Um, one end of London to the other in a matter of a couple of hours. So I knew that uh, my, my characters could do that. It's, it's funny, it's a huge, grand, exciting city, but you can, you can actually get around the main part of it that used to be there, I guess, you know, 150, 200 years ago. Um, and you can spend a day just walking those streets, which was the main, the main way of getting around or boat or getting on a boat. Um, and, and, Again, now you're going to get all my boring research because carriages were too expensive. So I had to figure out actually how would they get from the good side of town to the bad side of town and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, just you just totally nerd out on on what stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I'm glad you brought up Miss Angus um, because while we've been speaking, um, I, I've been trying to think about formulating a question really about the relationship that always exists between the, well, at this point, the descendants of people who have been colonized and people who have done the colonizing. And I think um, with with James Ponicke, a lot of that discomfort is very, mm, it's very subtle and specific. And it's, I think people people will recognize, um, you know, all the times that they've been spoken to a certain way or they've had interactions that made them uncomfortable. Um, I think, you know, you would recognize those kinds of what I guess we'd call now microaggressions. Um, and I'm curious how people who are on the other side of things, who have 
done the colonizing, who are the descendants of people who have done the colonizing, how they how they read that and whether you've had conversations with people about that. Um, I was just trying to think who a friend said to me uh, something about just kind of the disgusting politeness of the racism. Um, and I can't remember whether that was a, a like a settler descendant of one of those people or or um, a Maori friend or a family. I can't remember who said it, but that that was that's the thing that strikes me as the. Um, I don't think this is answering your question, but it's the thing that strikes me as the the uh, like you say it's called microaggressions now. But as I was writing it. I was also putting myself in Miss Angus's position where she doesn't know, they don't know anything else. They don't know any other way of relating to the world. And so um, it was fairly, and I, I mean, I'm descendant of those people as well. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if compassion is the word, but I I'm, didn't find it too hard to put myself in those shoes where um, your world, I mean, their world wasn't very big. And for someone like Miss Angus, um, her world was the smallest, even though she was in a privileged position. Um, she couldn't go out like um, she couldn't leave her home. There was there was no public toilets for for women. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, even that, even finding out about that was quite hard to find out about. Um, and you, please feel free to direct me, uh, redirect me if I'm straying from the question. But no, no, you, I don't think you are. I mean, I, I think that that's exactly it. This idea. I'm just. I guess I'm wondering whether there are people who who read that politeness and still don't see the discomfort lying underneath it, I, I guess, you know, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I really, really wanted to capture that, though. I want to really wanted to capture how subtle it is, um, how polite it is, how I didn't, because I didn't want the reader also to be enraged by these characters from day one. I wanted them to feel the comfort that James felt Hemi felt with them that they were um, outwardly nice to him. They were um, patronising, yes, but they wanted to look after him in the best hospitality that they knew how. And when they underestimated him or stereotyped him in some way, um, it simply wasn't within their um, understanding that he was more than that. And it actually wasn't within his understanding until things really became... um, clear to him that actually he was I think he was indulging in that um not kind of a seduction that um maybe they'll accept me maybe I can be uh, an English gentleman and they were kind of like yeah you can dress up like us but in the end he finds out you're never going to be you're never going to be one of us um and and nothing he could do would change that. And then I think he also realised that he wouldn't want that anyway because that's not, it's not what he thought it was. It's not. It's kind of a. It's, um, it's a bit of a ruse. It's a bit of a, um, a false. There's the false promise of the empire that everything is getting better, that progress takes us to a better place or a higher place. Um, and as an indigenous person, you're always kind of going, but you know, it was pretty good before we had this. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if we're going to a better place here, but I remember as a young person that that was the narrative, that that's what we were fed, that um, that capitalism and, and, and the, uh, the way we live now, the way we've been um, uh, governed and the, the riches of the empire, so to speak. We don't call it the empire anymore, but that's what it is. 
are going to make our lives better. And now we're paying really clearly the price for that. So I think that's where um, the idea that he would um, be talking to his descendants as, as he's writing this story and kind of going, oh, well, it's better over there, isn't it? You guys must be better off now because they, they promised us that this, would, this whole thing is going to make the world better. You often use Maori words, uh, both in description and in dialogue, without translation in the text itself. You know, there is no, there are no brackets. There's no pause after that for someone to say, "Oh, I mean the marketplace," <laughs> or, or you know, something like that. Um, why did you decide to approach it this way? Um, oh well, in I guess in New Zealand, it's pretty common. Like um, the, most New Zealanders know some Maori words, and a lot of Maori, uh, New Zealanders know a lot of Maori words. Um, not to fluency, but I think. We all there's a handful of things we can all take for granted. Um, actually, with this one, I tried quite hard to make it legible to people outside of New Zealand because I wanted it to be a conversation with um, the UK at least, but fantastic if other people in the world are reading it. Um, I wanted it to be I, I don't it kind of a universal accessible universally accessible story. Um, with previous books. Um, I haven't tried hard at all to make it legible to people. I've just kind of gone, this is what it is in New Zealand. Um, and it's not about keeping readers out who don't speak Māori, but personally I really enjoy books where Chinese is used or um, different Indian languages or different Chinese languages. Or um, I just really love world literature and often find that if you're from a different culture, you just have to use those words because there's no English word for them. So I, I try to make it con context gives meaning but I'm also in my I guess sometimes as writers we write for um, people like us so <laughs> I write for a reader who enjoys that who um, who doesn't have a problem with not knowing um, certain things and um, you can always go away and look them up but I in my own reading I often read books where I don't understand the meaning of a word um, but I get a sense of the culture or the sounds of that world from that word yeah, so I, I, I guess there's a pleasure in that for me and I, I also really embrace not knowing that culturally, I think I used it in where the Rekohu bone sings particularly because there was another culture there which is Moriori, um, the people of the Chatham Islands and uh, their, their language is almost dead. Uh, I shouldn't have said it that way. Their language was uh, almost dead but they're reviving it now um, because the people and the culture had been brought to the, the edge of extinction. Um, and so what words are left, what um, pieces of language are left, um, I really, I do want the reader in that instance to look at that and go, well, I don't know what that means, and to feel that sense of loss um, in some way, probably from the other side, that, you know, that, yeah, you don't know what it means, but maybe we won't see it again or we won't know what it means. Maybe there's no way to know what that means now because the language has been lost. I, I found that it was very easy to follow uh, contextually, but that also going down a separate little rabbit hole of research was its own pleasure, you know, um, awesome. just finding out what exactly that meant and, and how it fits in culturally and then going back and thinking, oh, okay, so that's what that meant. Um, yes, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I also thought we could close off um, since we're nearing the end um, with you talking to us about Maori literature and the place that it actually holds in in New Zealand. Oh, such a big, <laughs> such a big. Well, let's just finish there. Um, <laughs> um, the 
this is a really hard one because Maori literature is such a rich and really full um, thing, and you know it starts. We've been talking about people who are with, living within the culture or not, and I'm, I'm, I guess, saying I'm an urban person. I don't live there, but I go back. So you've got everything from the people at home telling stories to um, people like me living in the city and writing my stories down. Um, and it goes back um, to we, we understand ourselves through something we call whakapapa, which is uh, genealogy um, to a certain extent, but means a lot more than that. It's really about our connection with all things. And when we talk about whakapapa, we don't just say, these are my parents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents, but here is how I am connected to creation um, and the sun and the earth and the sky. and um, So we take our genealogy all the way back, kind of to the beginning of time and before the beginning of time. <laughs> so when I say um, Māori literature is really rich and huge, that's what I'm talking about. We're talking about something that is expansive, that is connective, that uses different languages or different dialects that can be expressed verbally, visually, um, in written form. So I want people to understand how wonderful and massive that is and how there are really exciting writers in our literature working right now. Um, but then on the other hand, I'm also very torn because I think there should be more of us um, writing, telling stories. Um, and I think that our education system and uh, to a certain extent our publishing system but I think it goes deeper than publishing um, have have not made it possible or have not I would say education much more than publishing but have made it difficult for those those writers to come through and because my form is the written form and particularly fiction I feel a real I miss having more people in our field. I miss having more fiction writers. So um, I can't say one without the other. Those two things sit beside each other. And sometimes people say, oh, well, maybe fiction isn't our form, but I think um, we are incredible storytellers no matter what form we take. And so I think, I think there's lots of people who want to write in it. It's very hard to become a writer in our country, um, as it is anywhere. But you know, those, those barriers that stand in front of um, Māori people and Indigenous people in general in terms of having access to certain forms, I think it's, I think it's something that we have to pay attention to. So kind of happy, amazing, but also uh, sad and we need to do something about it. Tina, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Tina Makareti, writer and senior lecturer at the Victoria University of Wellington. Her latest novel is The Imaginary Lives of James Bonnicke. We spent a fair amount of time talking about that. Uh, she's currently completing a collection of personal essays, This Compulsion in Us. Um, and you've been listening to Unearthing the Universe, a podcast for the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021.